This morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to an Old Testament minor prophet by the name of Habakkuk. It's more at the latter end of the Old Testament. So if you start at the, uh, between the Old and New, just move back a few books and you'll get Habakkuk. It's a short book. And um, as we open God's Word, uh, I, I know that over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been living in pretty hard times. Uh, times in which sometimes it doesn't make sense. If anything, it's kind of uh, crazy, senseless. Whether it's the killing that has been taking place in American cities like Tulsa, Uvalde, uh, Buffalo, New York. And um, even down south, you know, in L.A. with that Taiwanese Presbyterian church or, you know, in my own hometown in Sacramento. So, you know, when things like that happen, what do you say? What do you do? Um, and especially if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, how do you address some of these issues if we can address them? Um, and uh, that's only one side. The other side is when you... Uh, are involved in what God is doing internationally, too, in terms of the world. Uh, I'm involved in it, obviously, because of my ministry in being in Asia. But, you know, when you think of countries like Africa, uh, Middle East, and even closer to some of us, insisting in the news, with Russia, you know, invading and having war over there in uh, Ukraine. Once again, uh, you know, you ask yourself, you know, what is God doing? Why is he allowing these things to happen? And when these things take place, you kind of ask yourself, uh, you, know, uh, you know, it doesn't make sense. So your response, my response, our response could be a sense of sadness, a sense of, you know, despair. Uh, it, it, it could be a response in which, you know, you know, hey, the world is just going to hell. Uh, and you have a pessimistic skeptical type response. Or you may just say, hey, I'm going to sit back. It's not my, my problem. It's their problem. And you take a more passive, slothful you know, type attitude. Or maybe you're the different type. Your personality is one, we've got to do something. You're an activist. Uh, you've you, uh, you got to raise a flag. You've got to march. You've got to you know, uh, make this known so something would take place. And I'm not saying... Those things are wrong. I'm just saying we all respond in a different way. I like what uh, James uh, Gresham Machen said. He says, The world's problems can never be solved by those who make this world the object of their desires. And, and that's very true. If the object of our desire is this world, then we're going to try world's way of solving this problem. Now, I think we should pray for our political leaders. We should pray for people in a position of authority. That's what the Bible tells us to do. But really, where is the ultimate answer, solution to the problems that I've just raised as well as other problems we face? And I think that's where the book of Habakkuk comes in. So if you have turned there already, let me just kind of give you a big picture of this book. It's one of the books that we take uh, pastors through because we want them to see, uh, in a sense, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God in world situation. And uh, as we look at this book, the name Habakkuk is very interesting. It's the, the name means to embrace or to hold onto or grab onto. And it's very fitting for the prophet Habakkuk to grab on, to hold on. And we'll find out or what he holds on to in these times uh, that he lived in, as well as our times. It's really a literary gem. It's only three chapters, 56 verses. And, it, and it's a dialogue that takes place between Habakkuk the prophet and God. And in that dialogue, Habakkuk opens up his heart. And as he opens up his heart, he says in verse 1, chapter 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, there's some interesting thing in that first verse. The idea of oracle means a burden, something that's heavy upon his heart. 
something that weighs him down. And notice, it's, it's a burden that he saw and has to do with a revelation that God shows him, which will be unfolded in, in the coming verses as we unpack this passage. And so Habakkuk starts with a sense of doubting, wondering about God. But I want you to notice as you turn to the end of the book, look at verse 19 of chapter 3, especially the last part. It says, to the choir master will string instruments. And so when you put the two together, how does it fit? Well, Habakkuk starts with doubt, but how does he close? He closes with doxology. He closes with praise, which is very interesting. Because what he has just written down in the first three chapters, he really wants it ending up to be something that would be sung. That's why he says, to the choir master with string instruments. And so I scratch my head and ask, I don't get it. You know, what's, what's this book all about? Well, that's why I want us to get into this book to take a close look at it. Uh, the book was written around 597 B.C. And uh, as we see this book, it has to do with the in, impending uh, invasion and ultimate captivity by a group of people called Babylonians. In the passage here before us, they are called the Chaldeans. Okay? They are the ones that come in and take over the southern kingdom of Judah. And at that time, Judah was in a state of making wrong choices. They were jeopardizing and infecting the next generation in regards to this lawlessness. Okay. And so as we journey into the highs and lows, I like to break up chapter 1 and 2 in a very simple way. There are two rounds, and they are in the form of ask and answer. Uh, they're in the form of round 1, Habakkuk asks, God responds by answering. And that's what we have in chapter 1, verses 2 down to uh, verse 11. So let's look at it. Okay. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you do not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at the wrong? Desolation and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice is, never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. That's the first round of questions that Habakkuk asked. How long, Lord? Do I have to look and see what's happening? Why don't you do something about what's happening? Violence, conflict, suspicion, greed, extortion. And where are you, God, during this time? And we ask those same questions, okay? In fact, I would like to label this section disappointments. Disappointments with God. And that's a, there's a book that was written by Philip Yancey entitled exactly that. Disappointments with God. And what are those disappointments that he highlights that we also see in this text? First of all, silence. The silence of God in regards to what is around us. And maybe in the same way, the silence of God in light of these past couple of weeks of what we see and hear. Secondly, there's a lack of action. Nothing is happening. Okay, Nothing is in terms of intervention on the part of God. And finally, because of the first two, the silence of God, the uh, absence of God, uh, it leads to the third thing, which is he's not around. He's left this world to run on its own. Okay, And some people uh, you know, call that uh, agnosticism. Some people call that just winding up the clock and letting it kick and go its own way. Now, why would Habakkuk raise these questions? Okay? And I think it's because of the historical context of this book. Because you have to understand 
that Habakkuk lived through the time of a king by the name of Josiah. And if you know anything about Josiah, he was a good king. He was a king that brought reform to the nation of Judah. And the way he brought those reform was in, uh, reinstating the Passover, uh, bringing back the celebration of the Sabbath. Everything that you can think of that was spiritually good, King Josiah brought. And I think Habakkuk was expecting that to happen. Because prior to King Josiah, the, the condition of Judah was just in a shambles. Okay. Now, with that context in mind, let me ask, are you greatly uh, troubled by the things that are happening in our society today? Uh, are you just uh, disturbed by, you know, the morality that has, you know, just invaded our society and has brought it down? Wouldn't it be great to go back to the good old days, but you realize you can't go back to those good old days. And wouldn't it be great to be able to see that uh, the Christian faith and the church, not only in America, but around the world, had influence. People were listening to it. A couple of years ago when uh, uh, Governor Newsom said, you know, we want to keep those uh, uh, institutions or those businesses around, church was not one of them. Why? Because it was not necessary. Okay. And, and that's the attitude that we have today in our society. And I raise the same questions. Where's the impact that you and I have? God comes in, starting in verse 5, and he answers. And this is what he says. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astonished, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. And then on it goes, describing the characteristic, the description of the Babylonians. So let's step back. How does God answer Habakkuk's questions? Okay. He says, I'm raising up a nation, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to do what? To carry out my purpose. Now, when you look at that and read it, you would scratch your head and say, I don't get it. You know, why would God do something like this, especially if I believe in a good God, and here he raises up an evil group of people to carry out his good work? I can't figure it out. And uh, that's what I want us to understand. That there are times when the ways of God are not our ways. And even with the initial frustration over the silence of God and the inactivity of God and even his absence, you know, we step back and raise the question, why aren't you doing something, God? But the ways of God are not our ways. And I think there's a lesson here that God is not only teaching Habakkuk, but also teaching us. There's a lesson of learning submission to God whom we sometimes don't fully understand. As the characteristic of the Babylonians continue to run through all the way to 11, you'll see that this group of people should not be the type of people God would use. Look at further their description, starting in verse 8. It says, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence and all their faces uh, forward. Uh, they gather capti captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress and they pile up on earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. That's not the description that Habakkuk is giving. That's the description that God is giving 
of these Babylonians. So God knows that he's using an evil means to accomplish his good purpose. And when that happens, I don't understand. I don't understand. And yet God says, you may not understand, but you still need to submit to me. Now let's get to round two. <clears throat> round two begins in verse 12. And once again, Habakkuk asks, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. You, O Rock, has established them for reproof. You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? <clears throat> Let's stop there and pause for a moment. Here in round two, as Habakkuk raises some very legitimate questions, he's giving a description of God. The first round has to do with uh, the aspect of related to the disappointments with God. Here it's a description of God. God is described as what? He is everlasting. He is holy. Uh, he's a God who brings judgment. He's pure. All those characteristics of God. And for that reason, Habakkuk steps back and says, uh, there's some incongruency, there's inconsistency here with you, God. I mean, if you're characterized in this way, as I understand you, then you need to use another means than the evil means of the Chaldean, uh, 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 Chaldeans. And then, as we go on and, and see uh, Habakkuk's uh, interchange and dialogue with God, God does come back and he makes a reply uh, to uh, Habakkuk. And as he makes that reply, we see it picked up in chapter 2, verse 2. It starts by saying in verse 1, I take my stand at my watch post. I station myself on the tower. I look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So that's the stand that Habakkuk has after he raises these questions to God. And then the Lord answers in chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord answered me. Here it is. I want you to write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it, for still the vision awaits it's appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It may seem slow, but wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So what is this vision that is mentioned here in these verses twice? It's the vision that God initially gave regarding judgment to come upon his own people, Judah. God has already fixed it. That's his plan and his purpose. And in light of his plan and the purpose that God will bring judgment, Habakkuk is almost ready to address God. But before we get into that addressing, I want us to examine a little closer uh, uh, the verses of chapter 2. First of all, I want you to see um, God's revelation. When he says, write the vision, in verse 2, then make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. All it has to do with the, the unfolding, the uh, unveiling of the plan of God. And that plan is set to happen. Judah will be judged. Okay, In light of its lawlessness, its rebellion, its idolatry. Even repentance will not turn God back from bringing that judgment. Now, you may say to me, you know, 
repentance will, won't it? Well, turn over to 2 Kings chapter 20 for a moment. Because I want you to understand the larger context. In 2 Kings chapter 20, I had mentioned earlier about Josiah and how Josiah brought about change. Okay. And as he brought those changes, uh, preparing the temple, bringing back worship, celebrating the Sabbath and the Passover, notice in chapter 20, uh, and especially... Um, Oh, drop down to chapter 23 where the story continues with Josiah's reform in chapter 23 we read starting in verse 26 still the Lord did not turn from burning from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations which Manasseh okay had provoked on him. Manasseh was the grandson of Josiah. Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. Okay. And the Lord said in verse 27, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel, the northern kingdom, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. So what's happening here? That even with repentance, even was turning from sin, it's too late. There is a point, dear people, of no return when it comes to the determined judgment or wrath of God upon His people. And I think to a certain degree, to a certain degree, we may be living in that period of time. Okay. Because no matter what the Christian church is seeking to do, it seems that the wrath of God is coming upon not just only this nation, but ultimately upon this world. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything. I think we should still be uh, carrying out the Great Commission. We should still be being witnesses. But there's a sense where there's no turning back in, in, in light of God's judgment. And there will be a judgment that will be coming, as the Bible tells us, down the road in the book of Revelation. And it may be closer than we realize. I think these words, not just only from Habakkuk, but also from the Old Testament, causes us to reflect and to apply. And how can we apply it? I think one way is to realize that God is still a God of long-suffering. He is still slow to anger, full of mercy, abounding in love. And the first thing that some of you sitting here need to realize that is that there is an opportunity for you to still turn and to repent of your waywardness, of your selfishness, and of your sin, which is why we share the good news of the gospel. Because in Christ, there is hope. In Christ, he has taken the judgment, the eternal judgment, upon the cross for you and I. And so there is opportunity to reflect and apply the long-suffering and the patience of God. I think for the rest of us, we need to look around and realize that judgment is coming. And it's time to get up and get going in regards to the people who are around us. Um, there's a number of people in our neighborhood that whenever we talk with them, it's not serious with them, even though they may be facing terminal illness. It's not serious with them, even though they may be facing hardships. It's not serious with them, even when a loved one has passed away. And, uh, and do we stop being a witness and being light to them? No. We continue to press on, even though the judgment is coming. And we are praying that they would turn from darkness to light. So that's one side of the aspect of reflecting and applying. The other side is realizing not just only the judgment of God upon his own people, but even the judgment upon 
the nation of Babylon, which is what you have in the rest of chapter 2, if you turn back there. Starting in verse uh, uh, 5, he says, Moreover, wine is a traitor and an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all people. And then starting in verses 4 to the end of the chapter, what does he do? He gives five judgment woes upon the nation of Babylon. And these judgment woes, I'm not going to go through it, but as you read, you see it being brought out. Okay? That God brings judgment upon the nations of the world. But I want you to see something even more important. In these five woes, there are mountain peaks that are given. And what are those mountain peaks? First one we find in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The second peak is found for us in the last verse, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. So in the midst of these judgment woes, Habakkuk records these two mountain peaks. And what does it say? That when life circumstances doesn't make sense, keep your gaze on God. Keep your eyes on the glory of God and what He's doing. And keep your ears tuned to God by learning to be silent and be still and to know that I am God. One of my favorite writers is Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he wrote a little, little pamphlet called From Fear to Faith during the time of World War II. Martin Lloyd-Jones served in the United Kingdom as a pastor, Scottish pastor. And there were four lessons he surfaces as he looks at history and the events that were taking place at that time, which is very applicable to our time. First of all, history is under God's control. And we see that in Habakkuk, where it says, I am going to do something. I am going to raise up the Babylonians. Okay? And at that time, World War II, Hitler, the Axis, and then the Allies. God is in control of history. And God is in control of history today. The second thing is that history follows not man's plan, but God's plan. It follows the divine plan. And oftentimes we forget that. Some of you are history buffs and you love to read about events, times, dates, you know, locations. And you can memorize all of it in such a sequential order, chronological order. Well, I think seeing that history is also part of God's divine plan is something far greater and far more exciting. Thirdly, history follows a divine timetable. We see it again in this text where it says, In your days, God's appointed time, it will not delay. All those words convey time, and it's within God's timetable. Not the Chaldeans' timetable, not Habakkuk's timetable, not even my timetable, but God's timetable. And fourthly, and this is the clincher, History is bound up with the divine kingdom of God. The key to world history is the kingdom of God. Old Testament, the nations were tied to which nation? Israel. In the New Testament, it is tied to the church and to the kingdom of God in this period of time. As he said, let us not therefore be stumbling when we see surprising things happen in this world. Rather, let us ask, what is the relevance of this event to the kingdom of God? If something is happening to me personally, ask, what is God teaching me? 
Where have I gone wayward and how is he correcting me to bring me back in the right way? When sickness hits your life, your family, when you find out the news about cancer, it's a time to do some, you know, personal asking of questions. What is God trying to say to me? It's possible he's saying, hey, life isn't forever. This is not the end of paradise. This world is not heaven. We have something far beyond that. And over the course, well, two, three years, at least for Bev and I, we've had many people who've passed from this life into eternity. But what are we doing today? We are still holding on to our health to the degree that it's, you know, you have to answer for yourself to the point where, where is our trust in God coming in? Uh, now, in saying that, I have to be careful because I don't want to dismiss, you know, true health concerns that, you know, you may have. Even with Bev and her uh, 98-year-old mother who passed away back in 20, 2020, you know, we had to be careful ourselves. But we have to ask ourselves, you know, is health the end goal of our life? And when God shakes us up, what is he trying to teach you? Where have I gone wayward in regards to my faith and my trust? And is he correcting me in that right direction? And we need to ask the same questions in regard to the things we read, hear, listen to, and see in the current events of our times. I think there's a second very important application, and that is from the, wor from the words that God says to him in verse 4. And what is it? The latter part of verse 4 says, but the righteous shall live by... It's not the faith. That's what we find in the New Testament. It says, the righteous one shall live by his faith. Whose faith? Habakkuk's faith. I think the lesson that God wants to teach Habakkuk and us is, where is our faith? See, a heart that lives by faith places faith in the faithfulness of God. It's not just faith in general. It's specific personal faith. And this verse is used in the New Testament three times. And we're going to look at it in a few moments. It's used down the corridors of church history, especially by Martin Luther. And it's used today in many circles of theology where we talk about by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. And so... It's, it's a personal evaluation of your faith. Examine how deep is it? Okay. How personal is it? Is it really real? One of the things that we found with our kids in seeing them go off to college is that as they grew up in the church and the circles with the young people and the groups, we wanted their faith to be their faith, not dad and mom's faith, not the faith of the Chinese Christ Bible, but their faith. And that's why the setting of college was good, because it tested their faith. And we know statistics says that, what, 75% of people who go away lose their faith. And I asked the question, did they really have faith? Did they really have faith? As we see with Habakkuk, as we see in the scriptures. See? And sometimes that faith won't be passed on to your kids, to the next generation, unless you as parents and you as grandparents have that type of faith. And that faith needs to be tested through life situations and circumstances. And that's what's happening with our dear prophet. As I mentioned earlier, that phrase... The righteous shall live by faith is used three times. First time it's used is in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And if you want to, you can turn there. The words that are used in Romans 1, 17 is, 
The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. And so what is Paul in Romans focusing on? He's focusing in on the word the just, the righteous. How is one declared righteous? How is one declared to be just? Okay, it is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, a person who's justified ceased trying to please God by his own effort, by his own good works, by his own conniving and so forth, and holds on to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And when that happens, like Romans says, being justified by faith, we have that peace with God. It's not what I need to do, dear people, it's what Christ has already done, that I embrace Him and Him alone. Jesus did pay for it all. All to Him I owe. Sin did leave a crimson stain, but what? He's washed it white as snow. That's the emphasis of Romans 1, the just. How to be justified. The other time that we see it is found way in the book of Hebrews. And again, if you want to, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. And there it says, but my righteousness my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him so what's the emphasis of Hebrews the author of Hebrews here especially in this section that is preceded by that great chapter of Hebrews 11 which sometimes one commentator has called it the hallmark of faith it has to do with persevering faith it's a faith that believes in God and sticks with God, stays with God. And that's why he goes on in Hebrews chapters 1 and talks about uh, don't shrink back, don't give up, don't throw in the towel when it comes to this faith. And he illustrates it through a number of examples with Enoch and Abel and Noah and Abraham. Their perseverance through the various experiences that they they went through. Okay, and yet they didn't throw away that faith. And God will reward them for it. Okay, and I think that says something for you and I. In our Christian walk, in our life of sanctification, we need to persevere. Okay, God is the one who will hold on to us, like that song says. You know, God will hold fast to me. But I need to persevere. God will preserve me in my salvation, but I need to persevere. And that's why we call this term the perseverance of the saints in regards to our Christian life and law. The third time it's used is found in that short letter of Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. And these are the words. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And the answer is how are we justified? Of course, you know, by faith. And then he goes on and says, the righteous, what's the word? Lives by faith. So there you have it. How are we justified? Romans chapter 1 gives the answer. How are we to live out our Christian life? By persevering. Hebrews chapter 10. And how should we live? The righteous or the just shall live by faith. Having started our life of faith in this journey, we are to continue that life of faith in this journey. Okay, And that's why in Galatians chapter 2 it says, having begun the Christian life by faith, are we to live it by the works of the law? The answer is no. By no means. Keeping the law and living that way is not the answer. As you start by faith, continue by faith. The emphasis of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4 is how shall I live then? Okay. I need to live on a constant ongoing basis. 
of faith. So maybe I could put it in this way. When life doesn't make sense, I need to live by faith. Okay? Or put it another way, when I can't figure things out, when I don't understand what's happening, when God doesn't answer me, when I get confused, step back and say, God, by faith, I'm going to live by faith in you and you alone. Maybe this point can be stated in this manner. God is a God who works in many ways. And some of the ways I don't understand, and I will never understand until that day when I arrive in glory. But as God works in many ways, we are to live in just one way. One way. And that way is by faith. Not by works, but by faith. Now, this reality of the just living by his faith strikes Habakkuk in his heart. So as he gets ready to pen chapter 3, what does he do? He shifts and opens by saying a prayer, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And he closes that prayer with praise. And that brings together the main idea of this book. Okay? Yes, I am to live by faith, but also rejoicing in Him. It's not just say, oh, I'll grit my teeth, I'll live by faith. But there's another element. As you get to chapter 3, we need to rejoice in Him. And I'll expand upon that a bit more. But let's stop and draw a few lessons here. First, the lesson of waiting on God. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 3. And then later on, when we get to chapter 3, also in verse 16. Rooted in that word, wait, is the idea of a person who is in a posture of lying down on the ground, hands out, feet stretched, just like what a a police officer will do when he captures a a criminal or knocks out a person who's uh, uh, committed a crime. And as he's prostrate before that ground, he can do nothing. That's the idea of waiting on God. And I think we need more waiting on God in that posture and position. Not just personally, not only as a couple or a family, but even as a local church as well. Waiting on God is hard to do, but that's a spiritual lesson. It's found as far back with the life of Jacob when he wrestled with God and God touched him. Okay, Because Jacob needed to learn to wait on God in regard to the promise that God made to him. And Habakkuk had to learn that same lesson as well. So we know judgment is coming. We know the world is going to not get better and better and better. But what do we do? We wait upon God in this period of time in a prostrate, humble manner. Secondly, we need to listen to God because that's what Habakkuk had to learn. In chapter 2, verse 20, the Lord is in His holy temple Let all the earth, what? Talk? No. Listen. Be silent before Him. Some people have used this verse and it sets the, the tone of a worship. You know, the Lord is, is in holy temple at the church, so everybody keeps silent. I'm not sure that's the right application of this verse as much as the concept of listening to God in regards to our silence before Him. When things don't make sense, don't listen to yourself. Don't listen to the people around you. But listen to God. Wait upon God. Hear Him talk to you even as you talk to Him. Okay? And that's what Habakkuk does as he opens up chapter 3 with this prayer. It wasn't it James who said, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? Then thirdly, get to know God. Okay? And uh, 
Initially, we think that Habakkuk knew God in chapter 1, verse 12, where he said, God, you know, I know you're holy. I know you're pure. I know you're a God of judge. But I still don't understand. Get to know God deeper. Not get to know about God, but know God. And that's why when he closes up, um, uh, the end of the, the book of Habakkuk, he, he, he draws upon how God is my God. He is my rock. He is my strength. Okay. I love the lyrics of the song that you're probably familiar with and you sing, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, the greatest treasure of my longing soul. My God, like you, there are no other. True delight is found in you alone. Your grace it's a well too deep to phantom. Your love exceeds the heaven's reach. Your truth, they found a prayer, perf uh, perfect wisdom, my highest good, and my unending need. Personalize what it means to say, I know God. Then, as we continue to see, another is where I want to take you to chapter 3. Look at verse 17 and 18. We didn't go through the prayer of chapter 3, but let's look at the end of what Habakkuk says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields you no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there's no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in God of my salvation. I think that's the fourth thing. Learning to rejoice in God. So that when life doesn't make sense, not only do we keep on living by faith, but we keep on taking joy in Him. I don't think it's one or the other. It's both and. And like the the uh, Westminster uh, Catechism say, you know, what's the chief end of our lives? It's what? To glorify God, but also to enjoy God. It's to know God by enjoying God. And by enjoying God, you're going to grow and you're going to know God. The two go hand in hand. And I think Habakkuk is catching on. The question I raise is, where did Habakkuk get all these figures over these pictures. And I think it's because when he read about the Babylonians and what they do, when they would conquer a people, take over the land, they would raise the land, destroy everything in its path. Whether it's trees, vineyards, or fields, whether it's animals, cattle, or flock, they would, you know, bring total destruction in regards to you know, the people that they were conquering. And for that reason, he mentions it three times. Though fig tree, uh, there's no figs on the fig tree, and though this would happen, and though this would happen, I'm going to still rejoice in God. So, And that's no different today in our 21st century, where people who have been displaced, where there is famine, where there is desolation where there's hardship that in these circumstances it's not that I can't exalt God it's rather I won't rejoice in God so it's more of your inward heart desire there and finally the last thing I want to bring out is that we need to rely on God we need to show our dependence upon him and rely on Him totally. That's why we have verse 19. God, the Lord is my strength. He is the one who makes my feet like the deer's. He is He makes me tread on, my, on high places. And so I think that's a picture for us of total reliance or dependence. He's the one who gives us the strength to walk, to jump, to run, to shout, to sing, to raise our hands, to stand, to sit, to sleep, and so forth. And even as uh, Isaiah has said very clearly in chapter 40, he gives power to the faint, to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even to young people, 
who faint and are weary, and to young men who fall exhausted, they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagle, they'll run and not grow weary, they'll walk and not faint. That's the attitude of reliance on God. As I said earlier, the world's problems, our problems in life, can never be solved by us who makes this world the object of our desire. Then what is the object of our desire? What is your object of desire? I trust that it is God and God alone. I like to close with this, a paraphrase with these last three verses of Habakkuk. Though my job goes and my health fails and the forces of evil seem to have things their own way, and even though the economy doesn't work the way I want it to work, and the election does not work out the way I hope, and I'm not appreciated among my friends, and everything goes wrong, I will not pull the plug on you, Lord. I won't resent you. I will have my doubts and questions about how you are working, but I will not stop questioning. But there are one thing I won't stop doing either. I won't stop rejoicing in you, for you are my rock and you are my strength, O Lord. Let's go ahead. Father, we are grateful to you that you are truly God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, and you are the one who is our all-consuming delight and desire. And may this day in the house of God, in our time together in worship, be such that when we go out of here, we are reminded how great a God we have. And because of that, you are our all in all. We ask, Lord, that when things around us don't make sense, when someone that we know has passed away suddenly, when an illness is reported to us unexpectedly, when a person who has been on a life support system passes from this life, may we be reminded that we turn to you. And you may not give us all the answers, but you will give us yourself. And as you give yourself to us, may we grow deeper in our faith in you and grow stronger in our faith in you. So Lord, I pray that if there's any here who have yet to place their full trust and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that you would draw them to yourself. How wonderful it is to know that God commended his love toward us, that even while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. May you draw that person to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.